That was Fast Love, which happened to have been produced by today's returning guest, Johnny Douglas. Hi, my name is James Rodriguez Horton, and this is The Original Doll. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create the songs. We go behind the scenes and learn about the careers, hits, unreleased, and more. We also give back to charity. So for every question a guest answers, we get items donated to help those in need. So I want to give a special shout out to all of the guests. We've been able to help out women in domestic abuse shelters, homeless LGBT plus teens and more. So for more information, visit me on Instagram at the.original.dal. And a big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Thank you so much. Your help and support means so much keeping this, the original doll, open and free for all. So thank you so much for more information. Visit our website, www.theoriginaldoll.com. We're going to continue on with our conversation with Johnny Douglas, and we're going to talk about his time with George Michael, Kylie Minogue, and more. So be sure to follow me, stream, make sure that you subscribe, because we're going to be releasing many more episodes over the next week. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording, ripping, stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you do in fact see any of these leaked online, please report them to the webmaster. I want to give a special shout out to Johnny Douglas for returning with our discussions about his career and his collaborations. My name is James Rodriguez Horton, and this is The Original Doll. The Original Doll. We have, we're going to go in like chronological order because we have a ton of these questions. So we're going to talk about the George Michael older era, 1996. Francis from Toronto wanted to know, how did you begin working with George Michael? Um, Sam West Studios. Uh, I, I started working there because of uh, All Saints who were signed to ZCT, Trevor Horn's label that was next door to Sam West Studios. And I loved it. I'd kind of got camped up in there, kind of just do, set up all my equipment. I'd, I'd moved on from having three or four floppy disks. I, I kind of, I had a little, had a little collection of equipment and a, you know, a, a little team. Um, and I was in there doing uh, the Lisa Morish album, which I was doing after Gabrielle, which is the same label. So I'd kind of found Lisa, even though she'd kind of released records before. I'd got introduced to her. We did some demos. She got signed to Gobi as well. So this was like the first full album that I was doing. So I was doing every track apart from one I didn't do. And so I'd been in there for about, oof, I think it was about three months doing Lisa's record. And Somebody kind of said, you know, my Dave, who I used to work with, who was like my right hand man, I said, Oh, I've just seen a, I've just seen George Michael in the kitchen. Now, of course, he George is like my my hero, you know. What I mean, he's mm-hmm. like he was somebody that I wanted to be, wanted to emulate. Um, so that was very much like fucking hell. Now I'd seen quite a few people, famous people milling about in that studio and I'd kind of got used to it. I was never like a, I was never like a kind of like a, a mad fanboy. I'd always kind of keep it pretty cool because I've got to be professional. But mm-hmm. it was definitely like with George, George just had this, he just had this aura 
you know he was always like he was always like immaculately dressed always it was like <laughs> you know it was it was just 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 polished he was just polished and he was he was fucking george michael do you know what i mean so he just had this this aura to him you know what i mean he was he was tall and handsome and this mega superstar and like it was just like wow and you, you couldn't you couldn't get away from that so even me at first who was quite a straight talking northerner that wouldn't get starstruck was very much like oh my god <laughs> i was copying your pen back in the day so um <laughs> And then, and then I think obviously Lisa had found out that I was doing George. Uh, sorry, was found out that George was in the building. And oh, I was like, that conversation went this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. She basically, her and her A and R guy came to me and said, "Look, I know you've written all these songs, etc., but um, we want to do, we want to chuck a cover version in there." And I'm mm. like, okay. They said, oh, we want to do a cover version of I'm Your Man. So I'm thinking, and it's like a little twist because I'm a woman, you know what I mean? And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, I get it. And I kind of thought, is that because George is downstairs? Because I was like one flight up and he's in like the, the lower ground studio. Um, I kind of thought, is that because he's here? But I kind of thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I've got to <laughs> do it right. No pun intended. Well, so. well done, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that. Sorry for that. That just, I realised that guy got way through it. Um, I kind of thought, well, I thought, well, I've got, to, I've got to do it differently. I've got to do it. I can't do it exactly the same because the original was like a quick Motown thing. I've got to do it like a different twist on it. But I had this whole thing of like, wouldn't it be a coup if we could get him on it? So actually, like, to me, it was just like, even if, even if he's just singing backing vocals. So um, I I had this idea of, I got a lot of T-shirts printed uh, that basically was done like the old Wham T-shirts, like the Choose Life T-shirts. And it kind of said, like, Lisa Moorish, I'm your man, in, like, the same kind of font. They were very kind of homemade looking because I kind of drew it out. <laughs> sent it off to a t-shirt maker they weren't professional but i got about 50 of these t-shirts made and um i gave them out to everybody in the studio so the receptionist the assistants and um, marco in the kitchen everybody had one of these t-shirts and everybody wore it so he he used to come in about midday and i'd got there early dushed out all these t-shirts so there's probably about 30 people walking about with i'm your man lisa morish choose lifestyle t-shirts so he kind of came in and he's like what the fuck like he he can't he can't get his head around what's going on but it was all a way to kind of get his attention and then he just walked into my studio (laughs) it was kind of like well that worked but now what like back you know this is like it's George Michael there so I kind of told him what was you know what we was doing and I kind of played him it and um and we just kind of became mates from that point you know he was he used to smoke a lot of weed back then I was smoking quite a bit of weed 
And he used to just come in. He used to like do his sessions during the day. And then he'd just come up into my studio and he'd just listen to what I was doing. And because like Lisa's album was very split. So it was very kind of half of it was kind of like 80s funk soul, uh, which is what I'd kind of grown up on. And then the other half was kind of like darker, massive, attacky, what was kind of happening now in the UK charts or at that time. Um, and he was just he was just really into it. And it's kind of weird because, say, on Older with Fast Love, that was the kind of 80s influence thing. And Spinning the Wheel was like the darker, you know, 90s kind of jazzy trip hop kind of flavoured kind of thing. Or oh, that's how it started out. So those two tracks kind of became like, they were like representations of what I'd been doing on Lisa's record. But that's how I'd kind of made that jump. And he, he, he kind of said to me, oh, he's like, God, oh, I'd like to sing. I'd like to sing backing vocals on it. I was like, Yes, yes. <laughs> um, which he did. And then he sang some lead vocals on it. And then we, I just carried on making air records. And then he just kind of came in and just said, um, I'd like you to, you know, would you want, would you want to work on my album? You're like, no, get the fuck out of here. No, man. So of course you're like, yeah. And he, I've told this story a few times, but and I, I can never really articulate exactly what it looked like, but he kind of left the room. And literally to me, it was like winning the musical lottery. So I'm bouncing on the sofa in doing, like just on my own, doing this celebration. And he'd forgotten something and he came back in. And I swear oh. to God, I swear to God, it was like he caught me in midair. It was like I was in midair going, and I, I just kind of froze. It's like I hung in midair, like somebody had frozen me, like I was on a rope, like, yeah. And he's just kind of looking at me like, and I'm thinking, what can you do? Like, mass embarrassment. Um, and that's how I got the gig. That's it's like amazing. One of those, that's how I met your mother stories. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, and that was one of those things, because we had a question from Taki in New York City. He said, Knowing that up until then, George Michael produced his own music, how was that working with somebody who was their own producer versus somebody who their entire career has been collaborative with other producers and songwriters? It was, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was very gracious of him to kind of, to kind of get me on board with it. I think it was, I think like, you know, from a production point of view, it got to that point where, um, it's kind of a strange one, you know, with music production. Um, I kind of find that having a lot of money kills off music production skills because music production kind of involves you totally keeping up with what's happening technology-wise. It kind of demands that you kind of spend all your time in studios eating crap food and getting a bit fat and looking a bit shit and getting zero sleep. It's like this kind of commitment of, like, I'm talking about real producers, not, not somebody who just makes a little beat, like, you know, this whole thing. 
And I think that when you get really, really rich, you can't be asked with any of that kind of anymore. And I was very much at that point where that was my life, you know, listening to records, sampling stuff, being kind of like mass obsessed with it. George was kind of like, you know, pretty damn rich and famous kind of like at this point. So he had this real skill of when it came to like ballads or the mid-tempo-y things, his production was, you know, flawless. I think he was probably um, lacking that kind of up-to-dateness with stuff that was kind of like up-temper because he, he wouldn't have had the time to kind of, you know, dedicate to studying what was happening and techniques and what people were using. He probably just couldn't be bothered with any of that at all. So I think I kind of filled this, this kind of, gap where you know i could be that person that was obsessed by it you know I, I used to go out record shopping once a week to my local record shops around notting hill where sam was and i'd spend a few hundred pound on records some of them that i never even heard like old 70s and 60s things and i spent hours going through stuff sampling stuff looking for breaks looking for kick drums or snare drums or because that's how we got our sounds you know uh, you ever got a real drummer or you've got a drum machine or you you took little snippets mm. of people's records. George was never going to be sitting there for eight hours trips in through vinyl trying to find a snare drum. You know what I mean? Like when I used to find yeah. a snare drum that was exposed, like, fuck yeah, you know what I mean? That's a great <laughs> snare drum. But you sit there layering it and tuning it and doing all these things. You know, I think when you've got, you know, millions and millions of pounds in the bank, you just you just can't be bothered with that. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I kind of filled that that kind of empty slot, so to speak, where, you know, I could bring that obsessiveness with music production and obsessiveness with kind of stuff that was just more of the up-tempo stuff. So I could bring a little bit of cool sounds really shit to say that but i could bring a little bit of of like cutting edge cold kind of like the whole thing and i found it myself you know when when people have you know given me ridiculous amounts of money and i'm off there buying houses and supercars and that i couldn't be i couldn't be bothered with finding little snare drums or finding the latest thing you know i had to really work hard over these past years to, to forget absolutely everything and to go back to being totally dedicated to kind of what I'm doing rather than taking it for granted because you just fall off as a producer kind of otherwise. So I well, think that, the, was, that was the role that I filled, I think, with George, definitely. Well, and I was wondering, because one of the other questions was, and this is something that was big for George Michael, is we have this question from... Uh, Jerry from Australia. When you started working with George Michael, was this after all the label issues? Were you working on some songs and had to stop? How does a creative person continue on when it's years and years of legal battles? Because that's the other thing I was going to say is for him too, going through this whole, I want to be, you know, emancipated from this label. I want this, you want that. And I think it was like a five-year legal battle that at some point the creativity, I feel like most people, it would just kind of go, what I was going to work on their idea I wanted to go five years ago, then maybe it makes you just go, man, this is just mentally yeah. draining. 
Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was fortunate because older came after the legal mm. thing, so he was off Sony at that point. So, and this was you know, DreamWorks now, right? Yeah, DreamWorks in the states and Virgin in the UK. So, it was a case of like he very much had something to prove. So there would have been a whole lot of Q kind of Sony kind of behind it. I think I don't. Th- I mean, I mean, George very was very kind of um autobiographical. I can't even say it. Autobi- that word. Autobiographical. That's it. It's a good word. It's just really hard to say. All all George's songs were all very much about his life. Mm-hmm. They were just written. They were just written in a very uh, clever way. Um. You know, so you can listen to say Fast Love for what it is, or you could kind of know the true meaning of what is kind of behind Fast Love. You know, Fast Love is very much about, you know, cruising for guys on Hampstead Heath in the middle of the night, but it never actually says that. Mm-hmm. There's always that double meaning, but his songs were very much what was happening in his life. And if he didn't have anything happening in his life, he wouldn't write anything. Um, I don't. I, I imagine he probably would have written a load of songs about court cases and battles and all this kind of thing, but he didn't. I think he literally had down tools. He wasn't going to create anything for Sony whilst he was trying to, you know, get yeah. off. Them. And the way record company contracts work, they're so rock solid tight that there hasn't been anybody that really can kind of get off them. Unless the label just kind of go, all right, we've had enough. There you go, you win. Which very rarely happens when there's hundreds of millions of pounds involved. So I don't think George was recording anyway. So when I, at that time, so when I started with older, all that was done. Um, and it was a new label. It was, there was new people to impress. So I think, um, I think that's why, you know, Older turned out pretty good. And he probably hadn't recorded or written anything for quite a while. So that's probably why Older had a lot of, mm. it had a lot of passion around it, you know. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the experience, experiences that he'd had in his life, you know, with the death of, of, of Anselmo and stuff, I think, you know, there's nothing like a lot of pain to inspire great music. Um comfort can inspire great music but not as much as pain you know there's so many oh, yeah. incredible songs that have come from you know that's why a lot of people's first records are so great you know when they're on the bread line when they're that passion they're battling to make it they're writing stuff to change their life you kind of notice that a lot of people's albums once they kind of mega rich and all that it kind of starts to get a bit like you know a little bit kind of iffy so i can say you know say i could say take kanye west who i was a massive fan of in those early days i thought those records were incredible but then when the guys got hundreds of millions and kim kardashian's there and all that he's so happy and he's so busy on other stuff that that passion isn't necessarily kind of there so i think passion definitely comes from it an older had a lot of subject matter a lot of subject matter for him to kind of dig his teeth into so well, um, and that's that's something that's that's been interesting in all of these questions that i had people talk about older being like the apex of an artist like starting anew that is already 
shown himself to be a group member, showed himself to be, you know, this rock star, pop star, and then this came out. So Kyle from Scotland said, uh, original Dial James Rodriguez, can you thank Mr. Douglas? He created music that is beloved by the gay community and more. He helped give songs that I danced to with my friends and I cried to with my friends. He gave me music that created memories. Please just say thank you. Oh, bless him. To say. That's, that's so lovely to say. I mean, that's kind of one of the, I think, I think that's, that's one of the most incredible parts of my job. It's never been, it's never ever been the money. And, you know, I've had, I've had people write, you know, writing me letters, you know, you know, there was, you know, there was a couple of people that were contemplating, you know, ending their life. Mm-hmm. Something that I would have been kind of part of had kind of stopped them kind of doing that. I mean, I don't really think there's a greater honor. And I think, I mean, and it is just such an honor to be, part of the soundtrack of somebody's life because I'd also been that person you know I was this you know I would I'd be like this 14 year old kid frustrated with life you know probably you know miserable or heartbroken or all these experiences that we go through and I was playing other people's songs and miming with my hair brushing you know, those, those songs got me through those times. So when you can kind of pass on that baton and you can do something that has that same effect or that same comfort to somebody or gives them hope or whatever it is that's kind of positive, I think that's, that's like the greatest honour that there is. And that, that shit is worth way more than money or any kind of stuff. So, yeah, so I'll say thank and- you for that question. It was lovely. Well, and that was so many of these questions talk about that, though, because I think something that's often overlooked, there are two things that I've noticed in talking with people about George Michael over just my decades of being on Earth is many people were like, wait, he didn't work with like big producers, like from the beginning, every time, like there wasn't this, you know, like there wasn't Jam and Lewis in here or Max Martin, maybe there, like throughout every album. And Mm -hmm. I, I would go back and go, no, if you go back through, like he created this and we talk about gay icons and we talk about a lot of the women, the women themselves can say that they're a part of the, the LGBT plus community. Here's a gay man producing and making music for the gay community. Yeah. To me, that was a game changer for me because like I said, uh, you know, when we talked before I, I hit record is I grew up in a record store and George Michael, I always knew George Michael. And it's funny because the um, somebody to love. Then I started learning who Queen was. So I didn't listen to Queen music until the early nineties, but I, at that point, I knew all of George Michael's songs, Elton John, I knew from, you know, you, the Lion King sort of thing. And I always tell people it's not bad one way or the other, getting new ears on old songs is always an amazing time. Like going through those vinyl crates. I'm like, these are fun. Stevie wonder music. I was like, I didn't even know this existed. Fast Love, I could not tell you at that time that there was a sample in there. When I heard Wild Wild West, I was like, oh my God, they sampled Fast Love. And I was just like, people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, tell you guys. But I'm okay with acknowledging <laughs> that I didn't know every single song ever created sort of thing. But yeah, I wanted to yeah. point out the fact that here's an artist that really, you know, we talk about Prince going through label issues. 
George Michael did as well. You talk about people questioning, was Elton John out? Was he not out? There's George Michael. Like George Michael hit the highs and the lows that all of these people hit, but yeah. we don't throw him in that category easily without going, oh, because I feel like it seems so effortless that some, like Meryl Streep, like Meryl Streep performing something, it seems so effortless. You're like, okay, give her the award. But you don't think this is a craft that has to keep being created for every project. Yeah. And somebody else had said, uh, Mario from Texas said, can you please let let everyone involved know? And Mr. Douglas was a part of Fast Love and some other songs is, there were a couple of friends of mine who committed suicide because of what society did to them. George Michael was the first time that I heard somebody just say, what is my sexuality about? How does what I do impact you? And that album was a game changer for me and society as a whole. I just want him to know that there were times where I was heartbroken, sad, and I felt like a disgusting, alienated person. But when I heard older, I finally felt like I belonged somewhere. So can you please tell Mr. Douglas that because of his work, I'm still alive today, and I appreciate all the art that he's put out since. Wow, that's incredible, man. That's incredible. It's, a, it's an honor to have... It's an honor to have helped be a small part of trying to ease somebody's pain like that. It's kind of strange with George because obviously coming from like a teen heartthrob group with Wham and having this kind of, you know, big uh, adoring fan female kind of fan base. You know, when I first started out working with George, like, you know, he hadn't come out and it was all very quite you know, nobody really knew and there was a couple that I remember once like walking into like the lounge of Sam and he was sitting with Kenny his boyfriend at the time and he had his arm around him and then when he saw me walking he moved it away really quickly and I remember feeling really really sad about that really sad that somebody would kind of have to do that I mean, nowadays, you, nowadays it seems inconceivable, doesn't it? It seems mm -hmm. like, what's the fucking big deal? Like, so what? Like, yep. who would really give a shit? But back then, because he was still kind of trying to project this female fan base thing, and record labels were so scared of losing that female fan base, when in reality, none of those women have stopped being a massive George Michael fan. None of them. There hasn't been one of them that's gone up, oh, right? He's gay, and that's it. I'm not buying any of his records anymore. And I think, I think him kind of getting busted uh, by the police, I, I, you know, it was probably, you know, probably one of the greatest game-changing moments in his life. He might have even orchestrated it on purpose. Who knows? I don't know. But um, that kind of changed him, kind of like artistically, kind of then. Because all these lyrically, everything was always very kind of ambiguous. You wouldn't kind of, you know, you wouldn't know what was what. Um, and I think he just started to kind of embrace his sexuality more. And he was starting to embrace it more and more as he was, as he was kind of, you know, getting older and growing as an artist. Um, it's kind of strange when you're stuck with these record company constraints and what won't sell you know the whole thing you know there was very much a thing of like well you know middle america isn't going to buy you as an artist if they find out you're gay you know they, they're gonna fucking pull their guns out and go crazy you know what i mean and 
you know, you're kind of stuck with all these constraints. And I find that's, uh, you know, luckily, you know, as time progresses and we become more um, civilized and <laughs> more um, normal fucking human beings, it becomes that big, isn't something that people have to be worried about kind of anymore. It was like that changing time. Mm -hmm. Just like the 80s was very kind of like, I found that the gay artists kind of like in the 80s were absolutely kind of like, that was almost part of their promotion. I'm a gay artist rather than I'm an artist who's gay. Do you know what I mean? It was mm -hmm. kind of like, I yep. think of like Boy George or Jimmy Somerville or all these people. It was very much like, I'm a gay artist. You know what I mean? And it was like, yep. Whereas, like, you know, when you're just a fucking artist who happens to be gay, then you put in the art first rather than who you love. And yep. I think um, I think George was always very much part of that. You know, he just loved his art. He was totally in control of that art, every aspect to it, from the videos to the photog uh, photographs, the artwork, everything was kind of controlled by him because he was making art. And we'd spend, you know, three, four, five years sometimes making one record and him being in control of kind of everything. And um, whereas now it's, it's very much kind of like chucked out there. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, as far as him kind of, you know, his kind of sexuality goes, there was this change and I think probably older was the first time that he started to relax that and not mm -hmm. be not be trying to put across this hey girls kind of you yeah. know thing. Um, well, and what what I loved is going back through like old interviews and things like that, like leading up to that, where they would be like, "Well, are you like right away?" I think it was like in Australia or something. They were like, "Are you gay?" Like that was the first question, and he's like, "Wow, that's are you interested? Is that why you're asking?" Like, and he always like flipped it back like what what does this matter because I think I can easily say if George Michael was not talented he would have not had a career past you know the the, the freedom era you know what I mean yeah. because he was riding high and then with the label not wanting to back you for whatever reason if he didn't have the talent his career would have just ended there and I think mm. that that's what happens a lot when people not lean into it but when you're marketed as a gay artist then it's like oh well where do you go then you're not you're not branching out to do anything Whereas yeah. George Michael told these stories of pain, heartache, unrequited love. You know, I remember hearing Sam Smith talk about this unrequited love. The first album was all unrequited love and was like, George Michael was the one who let me go. It's okay to talk about, you can't get everyone. Like he, no matter who you are at the hottest, there's always something you can't get. And that's what yeah. made it art more relatable. So Absolutely. I had a question, I had a question actually with Fast Love before I forget. Somebody said, was it always called Fast Love Part two, Part 1? Was Part 2 already done? Like, what was up with that? Please, I've been wanting to know for like 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just Fast Love. Um, uh, basically, Fast Love was like, a, was originally like a kind of like a bossa nova style, chills kind of thing. I kind of did my thing. And then, you know, we kind of did like an extended version of it that ended up that ended up using bits of Lisa Morris's I'm Your Man and like it became like this thing. 
that then got cut into two and then cut and then they extended but they're all just let's just do mega long versions of these tracks and then the marketing rebrand you know branded it to whatever it kind of was you know um I was I was quite surprised when I saw it. I didn't know anything about this part one, part two stuff. I I saw it when I saw the record and like what part one? What's that? You know, I didn't even know. So it's just fast love. You know, there's a oh, one. I love it. <laughs> and then the mega extended version that's broken up into into pieces. <laughs> this is this is amazing. I love it. After 25 years, I've wanted to know. I'm like, well, thankfully we're able to answer that. Now the next yeah. question we have was from Anne in Dubai. She said, how did you end up working, remixing The Strangest Thing? How long after Older the album came out did they decide to release it? When you make a mix or radio mix, how much do you want to change from the original version? Um, well, the, the singles being Star People 97 and The Strangest Thing, um, they came the year afterwards. And they came literally when it was time for them to be a single. Um, I think like, you know, when I joined the older album, like a lot of it was already done. So I wasn't there from ground, you know, day one. Um, you know, he, you know, George took me into his studio and played me Jesus to a child before I'd even started anything. Um and a lot of it was done. He'd been working on it for a couple of years, I think, before I, you know, piled in there. Um, and I think because Fast Love was such a big record and, you know, and spinning the wheel, it was a case of like, well, let's kind of keep that going. So because I'd just done those two on the record, I'd done little bits, little bits of programming, little drum programming for him on a couple little bits. But um it was a case of like, let's give it to me to kind of keep that single energy going from those, you know, those two records, Fast Love and Spinning the Wheel. So it was literally like the next year. Um, you check, you know, you. I think, I think when you're doing a seven, like a, a radio version of something, um, you always have to show respect, obviously, to the artist, but you have to show respect to the song and you do what is best for the song. If you're doing some alternative club version or it's for something that isn't the main single version, you can do what you want. You know, you can do what you want for whatever works, the way you're trying to sell it. But when it comes down to the radio version, there has to be a certain level of respect shown to what is there already. So I certainly wouldn't start, you know, replaying chords and rewriting the song, trying to turn it into something else. You just kind of bring a little bit of extra kind of energy to it. So it's, you know, it's a bit of drum programming, a bit of, you know, extra keys, a bit of, you know, slightly changing arrangements or whatever. You just kind of embellish it. Um, give it a little coating of gloss uh, <laughs> rather than piling in there and totally changing it. Um, and the other thing too is I would assume you'd want to add something for the, the listeners who already know for the past year, they already know the original ones. Cause I, I go back to, we talked about Jam and Lewis, Janet Jackson, all right. You know, the, the Rhythm Nation era releasing yeah. songs three years or George Michael releasing in two years that, 
you know, Janet could have Heavy D come on All Right or MC Light come on You Want This to kind of breathe that freshness back into it. Yeah. Um, because if he, I'm already a fan and have been listening to the CD at the time nonstop, am I going to want to listen to it on the radio a year later? But I still want yeah. it to be close <laughs> to what I remember. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it's, and as well, it's like there was also, a, at, excuse me, at that period, <clears throat> there was a thing of like radio were kind of shying away from playing things that were too ballady, too mellow. You know, in the UK, you know, we've got Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, Capital. <clears throat> Capital Radio 1 are very much about, you know, up, became very much at that time about up-tempo, high-energy kind of pop music. <clears throat> in the 80s, it was kind of different. They could play, they could play a Phil Collins ballad or they could play, then go and play an Iron Maiden record. You know, it was just about what was the best songs. But production had, had really started to kind of push its head above the pulpit as far as kind of like, it had, it had a very, it really dictated whether something was successful or not on radio. So they kind of stopped, sort of cut down playing the more mellow stuff, unless it had a lot of energy to it. So to me, it was always about bringing energy to it. Now, a lot of the stuff on older is very chilled. I don't know whether that's the weed, but it was very just kind of like, yeah, just chilled and nice. But that stuff doesn't necessarily uh, translate to, to radio and singles very well. So like, say, when I did, um, when I remade uh, John Legend's Ordinary People record. It was exactly for that. And now that, that was like 10, 15 years later, but it was the same thing. We don't want to play like a piano ballad on UK radio. We need that kind of energy. So I think like with George's stuff, anything that I was remixing was just making it a little bit tougher, a little bit harder, bringing, bringing a little bit more kind of funk to it and just and putting energy into it. So it wasn't so chilled rather than completely reinventing the wheel. You know, you don't want to change it so people don't recognize it from older, but you want oh, to yeah. make it different enough. So, you've, yeah, like you said, you've just kind of refreshed it, basically. So that's what happened with those tracks well, and the reason for it. Well, and I think what's really kind of interesting is when I went back through and I was looking through like Billboard magazines and everything, I'm like, what else was happening at the time? And you had like Genuine Pony, you had No Diggity, you had Alanis Morissette, you had all these other, you know, Sonics on the radio. And here's yeah. this album, Fast Love. And I always say Fast Love to me was the one that stood out and got me to listen to it. But I tend to listen to the, the more chill songs more than that, you know, yeah. and I think it's because the album and I, I talked about um in a previous episode christina aguilar had the song called stripped where she came out with dirty but the rest of the album was not like dirty at all like that was the different texture in there but then when you went back then you had beautiful on there and things like that that you just go oh you got my attention now i go back through and oftentimes the songs that i go back to are not the ones that i played or heard on the radio over and over it's the yeah. other songs that i could just revisit on my own but yeah you all were, I mean, at the time, and here's George Michael, any artist in their career, 15 plus years, many people, or, you know, however long it was, many people are like, um, who's the new one? Who's this new person? But so let me ask you then, 
how did you go from the George Mike, I'm assuming the connection to the Wham remixes, because that also happened, right? 97, was that the um, the greatest hits, the like the best Wham? Was that yeah. just George's like, hey, <laughs> like, help me out. It, it, yeah, it was just, I think, you know, by that point, I was just the guy. You know, I was just his musical partner. And it was just like, next, you know, and Love it. I think like with, with Wham's greatest hits, um, he wanted to do something to 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 refresh it, to bring something different to it. Um, that was that was a really hard track for me because that was that was like one of the tracks that I was listening to when I was at school and wanted to be him. So it's like was very different scenario to when you're just given a new song or you're both working on a new song when you've got something that's from your childhood and you don't want to change it too much. You don't want to kind of start going, hey, because when something's a classic already, do you know what I mean? It's like it's yep. like when they it's like when they remake amazing Hollywood movies from the eighties and they kind of remaking it. That's always got to be really tough. And it was, it kind of felt like that. It's like, oh shit, I love the original so much. I wouldn't want to change anything because that is, you know, it's reached its pinnacle of, you know, cultural genius, you know, mm-hmm. it was, just, you, why, how could you change it? So I had to change it enough, but yet not change it. It was definitely something that, you know, I didn't kind of come away kind of going, oh yeah, absolutely love what I did on that it's just fucking brilliant I never think that about my own stuff anyway but that was definitely something like oh I've just done a bit on it I've changed it enough but yet haven't exactly reinvented the wheel and I guess probably I shouldn't have reinvented the wheel I think that probably would have been a mistake because it would it would have just become a whole different record then a whole totally different record and we didn't necessarily want to do that. It was made very quickly as well. You know, the average George song could take three to five months just on one song. I think like, I think the, the wham thing, I think I did in about three days. It's kind of like, wow. the B, kind of like the B-sides. The B-sides were all done in like three, four days as well. You know, you're not going to spend, you're not going to spend months and months on kind of like, you know, a B-side or whatever. So, um, yeah, the Wham thing was very quick. Just, just tricky to do. It's tricky to do. It's like saying, "Okay, go and reinvent lasagna." What do you mean? Like lasagna's lasagna. It's great. Most people love it. How can you change it? Like, how can you make it something that is different, but yet it's still lasagna? It's really hard. And that's mm-hmm. a bizarre. Oh, that's an amazing, uh, right that, that, that's amazing. Well, and it's funny because that actually answered our question from Lindsay in Mexico. She said, is it scary to rework a song that is so loved? So Lindsay, there's there's your answer. But I love that the yeah. lasagna thing because I'm like, because if you took the noodles away, it's not lasagna. Like the lasagna lovers are like, maybe they only are there for that, like the noodle yeah. part of it. Yeah, what do you um, do? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the pasta away and I'm going to replace it with ice cream but we'll still call it lasagna it's like it ain't lasagna it's like meat and ice cream do you know what i mean so it just kind of becomes like yeah when something's so iconic 
to go and try and base basically you're talking about rewriting the whole song you know you're talking about rewriting the music and making a whole different record and then you risk it just sounding like some mashup kind of like mix you know dub play kind of record you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place on things like that i was just buzzing to actually hear the multi-track because when you actually hear the multi-track and you actually get to, to listen to those old mm. things broken down, that's always, A, a great learning process, but it's a buzz. It's like, whoa, is that what it's actually like? You know, it was, it was kind of, that was more of the fun for me, just listening to the original of it, pushing up the faders and hearing what was actually done, you know. More with producer Johnny Douglas coming up this week. We're going to be talking about more of his work with George Michael, All Saints, Kylie Minogue, and more. And we will also be releasing episodes over the next week with some Britney Spears collaborators, songwriters, producers, and more. Be sure to follow me on your preferred streaming platform and on Instagram, the.original.dal, and on Twitter, at James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. See you on the flip side.